Welcome to the Underswell Podcast. News, stories, brand insights, product reviews, all to help you navigate the complexities of sustainability in your modern lifestyle. As I like to say, business can be done better, and in some cases it is. I'm Derek Sabori, I'm your host, and hey, it's just sustainability. Let's dive in to today's episode. What's up, guys? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Underswell Podcast. Today's topic, carbon. Carbon neutral, carbon negative, two degrees, and uh, and the like. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this lately and doing some studying up. There are some really cool articles that came out in these, these last few days, a couple on brands that really prompted um, my thought to, to do this talk. And um, also just uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, I was I gave a talk down at Nixon, the watch company. They're down in Encinitas, California. And my buddy uh, Michael Marks, he's the vice president of licensing down there, he called me up. They've got a, a cool thing called the 701 Social Club. And it's this gathering that they're doing where he's got this uh, vision to kind of bring their team together, invite the public, and and have speakers who are talking on creativity, design, inspiration, and in my case, sustainability. So we had this cool opportunity to get a, a whole bunch of people in there. They've got this really, really nice space down there. It's, it was kind of an indoor-outdoor vibe. Opened up the, the big roller doors, beautiful summer day, almost summer day. But uh, my job was to talk about sustainability opportunities, get the team fired up, do a little bit of education, um, remind everybody why this topic is so important um, and show them how exciting it is and, and to talk about what a what a brand differentiating opportunity sustainability is. And as you guys know, if you've heard the show before, that's really my angle is that brands have the opportunity to tell these great stories and to really set themselves apart from the competition. So we had a cool talk and you know lots of questions afterwards, um, but I kind of gave my story. My story was focused on this idea that the old way is dead, and I've I've done that before. Where, you know, I I kind of point to this idea that hey, we all love our stuff. We've got a lot of stuff. We do a lot of things. Whether you like to travel or surf or snowboard or or do yoga, it all requires this stuff that we need. And in the old way, things were made a certain way. It was kind of based along that linear take make dispose philosophy um, we didn't have a concern for how things were made where they went after life etc and there's definitely a shift going on and you're seeing it i'm seeing it but the new products that we use um, are better they look better they are um, they are considerate of people and the planet and the pets that we have and they are made from you know, either renewable materials or with renewable energy, or they are able to be taken back and put um, into a circular um, economy. And those materials, those end of life materials become nutrients when you put them back into the system. So there's a lot of really cool things happening. And it's happening in all sorts of different spaces from footwear to surfboards, to snowboards, to outerwear jackets, to you name it. So um, it's a really fun space, and I just I shared that with those guys. Um, and at the end, though, we had a little Q and A, and I um, often you know kind of overlook this because questions will come up about recycling or plastics or um, what are the simple things you can do or um, you know sort of the you name it. We kind of run the gamut, but 
I left with them. I said, oh, by the way, you guys, to me, I really want to make sure I drive this home. The biggest area of concern, and if there's an area that we need to focus on, it is, it's emissions, right? It's carbon and it's climate change. Um, and I've sort of changed my thinking over the last few years to realize that that bigger picture is really the biggest battle that we have. And kind of as I was prepping for that talk, I, I started just to do, because there's always this conversation around the two degrees, right? And we had the COP21, um, the Conference of the Parties uh, Agreement, where we were trying to commit to climate change that stayed within that two degree threshold. And there's the two degrees network. And you know there are all sorts of things kind of based around two degrees. So I wanted to make sure I understood why two degrees was such a big thing. And I, of course, landed on a few different articles. Um, let's see, one by a few different ones by Vox, which is my favorite go-to explanation website, VOX. PBS um, also had a cool article, Why Two Degrees Celsius is Climate Change's Magic Number. And, um, and we'll go from there. But um, Oh, and there's a cartoon on another Vox site. It's, it says, show this cartoon to anyone who doubts we need huge action on climate change. So what I want to do today is go through these articles, sort of break down, you know, why two degrees is way worse than one and a half degrees, why two degrees was the number in general, and why brands, um, why it's why it's such a big deal, and why, and maybe you'll start to have an understanding of why Lyft, you know, the the rideshare company is now carbon neutral. That that's been in the news as of of April, or why. The carpet company Interface, why their flooring is now carbon neutral at no extra cost to customers. That's another article that I found that I was excited about. So let's dive in and see why brands are making such a big fuss about this. Um, and why, and perhaps, and not why, but maybe I can get you to sort of shift your thinking and, and to, to realize how important emissions, balancing our carbon, um, you know, our, car, our use uh, and the, the carbon that we emit and keeping that in check to hopefully, hopefully um, keep climate in, you know, in balance. Um, unfortunately, it's a little bit of a doom and gloom topic. So here we go. This, um, this article is the PBS article. Um, it is called Why Two Degrees Celsius is Climate Change's Magic Number. This was back in 2015. It says, we hear all the time that we need to stop the planet from warming an additional two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Why is that specific number so important, though? And what happens if we exceed that limit? William Brangham offers some background on that climate science target. Um, so he says, for, for several years, the stated goal of international climate talks has been to stop the planet from warming an additional two degrees Celsius. People talk about just two degrees. Um... For the last 10,000 years, the Earth's temperature has been fairly steady, fluctuating by only about one degree Celsius. It's risen and fallen, but all of human existence, everything we have ever done as a species has happened in this narrow temperature range. And it says Richard Alley is a climate scientist at Penn State University. He says, we've had 10,000 fairly warm, fairly boring years with little wiggles caused by the sun getting brighter or dimmer and wiggles caused by volcanoes exploding and blocking the sun with dust for a couple years. At the end of this 10,000 years of sort of boredom, 
We are pushing very hard, and we are pushing very hard in a number of ways, but the biggest one of those is putting CO2 in the air to cause more warming. William Brangham goes on to say, this chart, and they show a chart, shows the historical amount of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. It too has gone up and down through time. Here's where humans came in. You can see the drastic um, spike. Here's where we started burning oil and gas and coal, and here's where we are today. And there's this graphic that they've got. This actually comes from a video that they've got um, um, on the site. But the spike just basically goes straight up. And um, all that carbon sitting up in the atmosphere traps the sun radiation, sun's radiation and slowly drives up Earth's temperature. And for the now, for the first time in our history, we have pushed above our historical temperature range. And if you can imagine, there's sort of this bottom um, threshold and this top threshold and the graph just sort of bounces up and down between within these within these parallel lines and then all of a sudden we have our climate um, all of a sudden we have our climate range going way up outside of that boundary and he says the UN's meteorological agency says that by the end of this year so that was in 2015 the planet will have warmed an additional one degree Celsius since the late 1800s that's halfway to the two degrees Celsius limit that global global leaders in Paris are trying to avoid so um, let's see he says over many decades scientists have been asked how much warming can humanity tolerate before experiencing the most destructive and dangerous effects of climate change this is where the threshold of 2 degrees Celsius, or about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, came in. Scott Bart Barrett of Columbia University, he served on UN's climate panel and now studies global climate treaties. He says, I think that the 2 degree target was chosen for more political reasons than for true scientific reasons. The idea was to, if countries could agree on a collective target, that would mobilize the action needed to get the whole world to act together. And then William Brangham says, while there's some uncertainty about how much of a problem two degrees of additional warming will be and how we will be able to ad adapt to it, scientists say we will likely see longer droughts, more intense heat waves, which could cause big disruptions to the world's food supply. At two degrees, sea levels could rise several feet, which would flood many coastal communities in the U.S. and potentially cause large migrations of people, climate refugees, from countries like Bangladesh and India and Vietnam. And according to the most recent data, this was in 2015, it's now going to be the hottest year on record. If I jump over to a NOAA report, this was um, NOAA.gov, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration um, report. They had a, um, a piece that came out in January of 2018 that 2017 was the third warmest year on record for In fact, NOAA and NASA scientists confirm Earth's long-term warming trend, that it continues. So uh, back in January of 18, 2000, January 18th of 2018, the article says, after three consecutive years of record high temperatures for the globe, Earth was a significantly cooler planet in 2017, but not by much. It says that Earth's globally averaged temperature for 2017 made it the third warmest year in NOAA's 138-year climate record, behind 2016, which was the warmest, and 2015, which was the second warmest. However, unlike the past two years, 
Earth's average temperature in 2017 was not influenced by the warming effect of an El Nino, say scientists from NOAA's National Centers for Environmental, uh, Environmental Information. It says the average temperature across the globe in 2017 was 1.51 degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century average of 57 degrees Fahrenheit. 2017 marks the 41st consecutive year since uh, 1977 with global land and ocean temperatures at least nominally above the 20th century average. The six warmest years on record for the planet, they've all occurred since 2010. And then the article points out that the state of sea ice is also um, not good. Sea ice extent, which is the coverage at the poles, remained low throughout last year. Antarctica had a record low extent in 2017, while the Arctic had its second lowest ice coverage on record. And it says that 2017, as ranked by other scientific organizations, that also in separate analysis of global temperature data re released at the same time, NASA scientists ranked 2017 as the second warmest, second warmest year on record. The minor difference in rankings is due to the different methods used by the two agencies to analyze global temperatures, though over the long term, the agency's records remain in strong agreement. Both analyses show that the five warmest years, the last five warmest years on record, have all taken place since 2010. So I think it's uh, clear to see things are warming up intensely. It says analysis, uh, analyses from the United Kingdom Met Office and the World Meteorological Organization also ranked 2017 among the top three warmest years on record. And then they've got this um, on this site. They've got this infographic with selected significant climate anomalies and events in 2017. It's a map of the globe that indicates noteworthy climate and weather events that occurred. But here's some interesting um, findings from their report. It says that the month of December, despite the cooling influence of a weak La Nina in the latter part of the year, December ended up as the fourth warmest December on record for the globe with an average temperature of 1.44 degrees above the 20th century average. Um, also, the globally averaged sea surface temperature, it was the third highest on record, 1.21 degrees Fahrenheit above average. And the globally averaged land surface temperature was also high, the third highest on record, 2.36 degrees Fahrenheit above average. South Africa, I'm sorry, South America had its second warmest year on record, Asia its third, Africa its fourth, Europe its fifth, and North America and Oceania their sixth. And then like we mentioned above, the average Arctic sea ice extent for the year was 4.01 million square miles. This is the second smallest annual average since record keeping began in 1979. And the average Antarctic sea ice extent for the year was 4.11 million square miles. That's the smallest annual average since record keeping began in 1979. So tough article to read, um, but they've got uh, some good pictures and infographics here. And, but that's, that's sort of the dire state that things are in. If we look at um, some of these other articles, I'm gonna jump to a Vox one that says, show this cartoon to anyone who doubts we need huge action on climate change. So this was updated on January 5th, 2018 by Alvin Chang and David Roberts. And they've got this great little infographic. Um, it just is sort of, a, it almost looks like um, 
a Tetris or a Minecraft um, <laughs> um, infographic here with these little block figures. But it's a good explanation of why climate change is so important, why it's such an um, important topic, and how the role that carbon and emissions play. So let's dive into it and see if I can help explain why, um, why we So this is how it goes. It says, this is Earth. It's a crisp fall day. Why would you believe Earth is in a dire situation? Let's look a little deeper. Um, it says the brown area below represents all the fossil fuels, oil, coal, and natural gas that humans have identified as recoverable with current technology. The black spot is what we're currently harvesting with mines and wells. So the um, infographic is like this cube and, oh, I don't know, maybe about 20% uh, of it is brown and they've got this um, and then about 5% of it, it looks like, is the portion that we are cur currently harvesting. They've got this oil, um, or this oil hammer kind of pulling up some oil. So it's a tiny, it's a small little spot. So what if tomorrow all the world leaders got together and decided to stop building new mines and wells? So they pull off the, uh, the portion that we are currently harvesting. And then we used all the fuel in, this, in the existing mines and wells. What then would Earth do? What would that do to the Earth? And uh, it goes on to explain. It says it would release, so this is basically just using what we already have access to it would release about 1.1 trillion tons of carbon dioxide into the air. Scientists have figured out that this scenario would almost certainly drive up the Earth's average temperature by more than 2 degrees Celsius. That's that magical number that we've all been striving for, um, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, relative to pre-industrial levels. That's not a big deal, right? Question mark. Um, it says, actually, it would be a massive catastrophe the human suffering would be unthinkable. When most of us think about Earth warming by two degrees, we think about it being, well, two degrees warmer. And has a little guy character, he says, whoa, maybe I should take off this scarf. He's wearing a little scarf. But that's not quite right. First of all, it means Earth would get an average of two degrees warmer. This means some regions, especially on land, will get much hotter, far more than two degrees. The Arctic, which houses much of the world's ice, which we already saw was um, at some of its lowest um, masses that we've seen, it would warm by almost 11 degrees Fahrenheit. The U.S. Southwest, already suffering from increased drought, could warm by almost 10 degrees Fahrenheit, enough to create near-permanent super droughts. The other problem is that Earth's ecosystems would behave differently. For humans, it would mean rising sea levels, fresh water shortages, reduced agricultural productivity, food stress, and the conflicts and emigration that come in their wake. A lot of people will die and it's not because they burn to death, it says it's because we don't have enough food and water. It would be like slightly heating up a fish tank, which is okay for the fish, but it kills the algae, and the al it kills the algae that the fish eats. All of this will be well underway by the time we hit two degrees. And the further we go past it, the worse it will get. So we all agreed in Paris, it says not to let it happen. About 200 countries, including all the world's major emitters, they agreed at the summit in Paris in 2015 that letting the planet, planet warm beyond 2 degrees is unacceptable. And even 2 degrees is awful. We vowed to do our best to stop warming at 1.5 degrees, although most climate researchers believe 
that target is no longer realistic, meaning they don't even think it can happen. That's why we hear so much about efforts to stop warming at two degrees. But how do we do it? First, we figure out how much carbon dioxide we're allowed to emit. When we burn fossil fuels, we emit several harmful gases, but we focus on carbon dioxide for one reason. It stays in the atmosphere for centuries, accumulating and trapping heat. And I know there are some others, um, there's methane, and there are others that are really toxic, but it says, um, hey, carbon dioxide, this is a little cartoon graphic, hey, carbon dioxide, you just don't go away, so you trap heat for centuries. And then the other one, the other bunch of molecules says, hey, methane, looks like you're breaking down after 12 years, bye. So this means that we can calculate how much carbon dioxide it would take to warm the Earth a certain amount. According to our best calculations, it would take about 843 billion tons of carbon dioxide to warm Earth about 2 degrees. So there's the number. That's, that's sort of our reserve. It would take about 843 billion tons of carbon to warm Earth about 2 degrees. Um, let's see. And then it goes on to say, if we decide to keep using fossil fuels at the same rate, we'll hit our limit in 19 years. Because currently we emit about 39.2 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. And that number is only rising. But if we were able to keep it at that amount, what would happen? After one year, our mug would look like this. So they've got this um, little character with an empty mug. It's an oversized mug. And it's being filled with oil. And this mug um, can hold 843 billion um, units, right? That's our that's our threshold to keep us within the two degrees. And so if we use what we are currently using, um, it's just this small little amount. It says it's a huge, it's not a huge hit, but after 21 and a half years, we'd be there. And boom, so 21 and a half years, we have filled up that eight point that 843 billion. And it says it gives us a 66% chance at staying under 2% Celsius if we stay within that 843 billion. But that's in, in the year 2037. If we reduce emissions until we get to zero in the, in the year 2065, we still need to invent world-changing technology. Let's say that over the next 47 years, the article says, we drive down our use of fossil fuels all the way to zero. Unrealistic in my words, right? It's an optimistic long shot, but this is the scenario climate scientist um, Joeri Rogelge proposes. That's a hard name to say. It's J-O-E-R-I-R-O-G-E-L-J. The scenario provides a 66% chance of limiting warming to 2 degrees, but there's a kicker, it says. The kicker is that even in this crazily ambitious scenario, we have to rely on negative emissions, technologies that pull carbon out of the air and bury it. The problem? We have no clue if that's even possible. I'm going to stop right there because there are a couple things that I have seen. There is a climate um, concrete, a concrete that traps concrete, I mean uh, carbon, apparently, forever. I'm going to pull that article up. There's a company um, here in Costa Mesa, um, Air Carbon, that's making plastics out of carbon that is pulled from the air. So I know this is sort of um, happening, and we'll see if we can do some research on that, but um, let's get back to this article. Negative emissions technologies have not been tested or proven at any scale. We are literally gambling our species' future on the idea that we are going to be able to invent it and scale it up to enormous size by 2065. 
So let's say somehow that we get to no emissions in 2065 and we invent this world-changing technology. We've saved the world, right? Not definitely, it says. It would only give us a 66% chance at staying under 2 degrees. Remember when we all agreed in Paris that 2 degree warming cannot happen? This long shot is what they were committing to. Given the evidence, the global community has committed to not let the Earth warm by more than 2 degrees. In doing so, countries committed to rapidly reducing and eliminating all production and use of coal, oil, and natural gas, and to inventing and scaling up negative emissions technology. The problem is, they don't seem to realize that's what they've committed to. No country is taking this long shot seriously. This means Earth will probably warm past 2 degrees. It's terrifying, the article says. Right now, the cool fall wind is flowing through windows and everything feels fine. Nothing seems dire. So it's understandable why many of us don't feel that it's an urgent political priority. But here's the reality. We're heading toward a global catastrophe that will cause unthinkable human suffering. The data is clear. We need to turn the ship now or else we'll never be able to avoid disaster. And then they have this little cartoon of uh, two guys sitting on the Titanic up on top. There's uh, two, two characters fighting on the deck below. And one captain up at the top says, we should turn, captain. There's a big iceberg, obviously, up ahead. He and the captain says, we will later. First, we have to stop that fight on deck. And you can sort of see the absurdity of it that uh, yeah, that's there. Um, the article goes on to say, but no country is taking this two-degree goal seriously. It, hasn't even, it has not even been mentioned in a presidential debate. Instead, we're focusing on threats that feel more imminent. It's just the way most humans are calibrated. So our true test is figuring out a way to comprehend that mortal threat is on the horizon and act accordingly. And so maybe on the coattails of that article, I'm going to jump over to another one that I think um, explains things a little bit more. And then I'm going to talk about a couple things that brands are doing. But this is another Vox article, and it is um, titled, This Graphic Explains Why Two Degrees Warming of Global why two degrees of global warming will be way worse than one and a half. So we just talked about this scenario of barely keeping within two degrees and, and the, the crazy um, strategy and actions that it would take to even get there. But, um, and we've already heard from Noah that we are continuing to heat up. But it says, uh, your terrifying climate graphic of the day. This was January 19th, 2018 by David Roberts on Vox. Signatories to the Paris Climate Agreement, every country in the world, unless and until the U.S. drops out in 2020, agreed to what is now, what is by now a familiar goal, holding the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. How important is that difference, though? How much worse would 2 degrees be than 1.5 degrees? Is it worth the extra effort? And would it be truly a truly heroic effort to limit temperature rise to that lower target? It's been difficult to answer these questions, in part because they are value-laden and incredibly complex, but also due to a paucity of research. And I want to stop. What the heck does paucity mean? I'm not afraid on this podcast to um, get in there and... Uh, be human. So if we define paucity, paucity is the presence of something only in small or insufficient quantities or amounts. Scarcity. Interesting. I might have just used the word scarcity. But also due to a scarcity of research, there we go, 
While there's been a great deal of work done on the difference between, say, 2 and 4 degrees warming, which would be catastrophic, it says, there's been less modeling around 1.5 and, and no comprehensive comparison of 1.5 and, and 2. Happily, a new study in the journal Earth System Dynamics tackles this directly. Over at Carbon Brief, Roz Pidcock has a great rundown on the study that gets into the background and some of the implications. Carbon Brief, just one word, Carbon Brief. Best of all, the team at Carbon Brief, which you should really bookmark, has compiled the relevant comparisons in the study into a single, clear, aesthetically pleasing graphic. And it is nice. On the left, it has a 1.5 Celsius degrees of warming versus to the right, 2, point, uh, a 2 degrees of warming. And they break it down into these the following topics. Heat waves, fresh water, heavy rainfill, crop yields, and sea level rise, and coral bleaching. It's like a weather forecast from hell, the article says. Two degrees will be much worse than one and a half degrees in some places. In terms of heat extremes, the authors write, the additional 0.5 Celsius degrees in global mean temperature marks the difference between events at the upper limit of present-day natural variability and a new climate regime, particularly in tropical regions. Around the Mediterranean, freshwater availability will drop by almost twice as much as two degrees at at let's see, will drop by almost twice as much at 2 degrees as at 1.5, 17% versus 9. Some high-latitude regions may benefit from the difference between 1.5 and, and 2 degrees, though such benefits will be wiped out if temperature subsequently continues rising. But even getting up to 2 degrees, tropical regions like West Africa, Southeast Asia, as well as Central and North America are projected to face substantial local yield reductions, particularly for wheat and maize. So we're seeing food crops being affected. As for sea level rise, relative to 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees would mean 10 centimeter higher levels and a 30% higher rate of increase by 2100. Coral reefs, though, are pretty screwed no matter what. In a 1.5 degree scenario, the percentage of the world's coral reefs at risk hits 90% in 2050 but declines to 70% in 2100. In a two degree scenario, they are all at risk. We will have more information on this comparison when the IPCC completes its special report on the impacts of one and a half degrees later this year, but the new Earth System Dynamics study already confirms that many scientists have been warning for years, two degrees is not a quote unquote safe threshold. Negative impacts are already underway and will only get worse. Stopping warming at one and a half degrees would require major sustained global action. We don't have very long to make up our minds. The window for hitting one and a half degrees, it says, is rapidly closing. And here's another terrifying graphic from Carbon Brief showing how many years remain before the carbon budget for various temperatures is used up. This is nice to link what we just talked about, right? That 843 billion budget that we have to stay within um, the two degrees, but it says uh, it's got a carbon countdown infographic how many years of current emissions would use up the IPCC's carbon budgets for different levels of warming? And then it goes on to say that at our present rate of emissions, our carbon budget for a good 66% chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees, it will be used up in six years. And that's what this uh, infographic shows. Except, oops, that graphic is two years old, so now it's down to four years. To hit the brakes at 1.5 degrees, global carbon emissions would need to immediately begin plunging faster than they ever have and hit zero by 2050 and then go negative. And that's similar to um, the other article that we just went over. That would require the equivalent of the U.S. mobilization. I think this really helps put in perspective when I read this earlier. 
that it would require the equivalent of the U.S. mobilization for World War II, only global and sustained for the rest of the century. The chances of that happening seem, well, remote, it says. For all we know, Trump will still be in, the, be in office when the one-and-a-half-degree budget is used up. But we should be clear about the decision we are making, even if we are only making it by not making a decision. By delaying the necessary work of decarbonization, we are consigning millions of people in tropical regions to less food and in the Mediterranean to less water, with all the attendant health problems and conflict. We're allowing more heat waves and higher seas. We're giving up on the world's coral oceans and with them, the hundreds of species that rely on them. And even then, the decision will still face us, two degrees or three. Again, it will mean more heat waves, more crop losses, more water shortages, more inundated coastal cities, more disease and conflict, millions more suffering. And even then, the decision, three degrees or four degrees, the article finishes by saying the longer we wait, the more human suffering and irreversible damage to ecosystems we inscribe to our collective future. But there's no hiding, no escaping the imperative to decarbonize. It must be done if our species is to have a long-term home on Earth. Seems like the smart thing would be to get on with it. So, powerful article, I think, on Vox. And, and you know, I am of the belief that Vox is pretty... Uh, a pretty rational um, site explains things well, backed by good science. So there you go. That's why, to me, that's why I finished my talk at Nixon with carbon, guys. It's about carbon. It's about emissions. It's about climate change. We all need to be aware, and we need to be doing what we can to drive it. And these articles that I saw, though, in sustainable, um, sustainable brands, for one, and um, and one that came through on LinkedIn. But here on Sustainable Brands, it says Walking the Talk. This is in their Walking the Talk sub, um, um, section. All of Interface's flooring is now carbon neutral at no extra cost to customers. So now when we start to see these stories, we understand why this is important. And this is not just sort of um, greenwashing or putting a label on things. These big mega companies are, are doing this and hopefully hoping to drive change and really move the needle on what we just talked about. But it says that Interface has become the first global flooring manufacturer to declare that all of its products, including all carpet tile and luxury vinyl, are carbon neutral across the entire product life cycle. The company is now offering its carbon neutral floors program as standard to every customer at no extra cost to help them meet their own sustainability goals. So that's cool. Um, and one of the other things that came up, um, oh, here's another one. Lift Ride is now carbon neutral. It says your Uber isn't. This was on The Atlantic in the science section, an article by Robinson Meyer. It says the ride-hailing service announced that starting this week it will go carbon neutral. Lyft will actively offset the carbon dioxide pollution pro produced by its more than 10 million rides worldwide each week. In short, this means that taking a Lyft will probably not make global warming worse. Lyft says the program will begin immediately. It says that they are the first major ride-hailing service to promote promise carbon neutrality. Uber, its main competitor and the dominant ride-hailing app worldwide, has not made a similar pledge yet. This was uh, April of 2018. Hopefully, um, I don't know if that's still the case. Um, it said a spokeswoman for Uber declined to comment. And there are some things to consider. You know, when we look at carbon neutrality, we look at um, 
carbon offsets. You know, there are definitely things to consider. Um, but I think when companies are reporting them, you know, reporting on their emissions, having third-party verified, um, you know, deforestation projects put in place, or they're cutting their greenhouse gas emissions, then I think it's good. This article does does a pretty decent job because it says that among it says earlier this month. Uh, let me let me stop here. It says um, this new program is in keeping with Lyft's earlier climate promises. Last year, it joined the We Are Still In movement, the Mike Bloomberg-led coalition of more than 2,700 um, cities, companies, and universities in the United States who pledged to cut their emissions in line with the Paris Agreement. Among the other companies following through on that goal earlier, earlier this month, Apple said it now uses 100% renewable energy. McDonald's has pledged to cut its greenhouse gas emissions 36% by 2030, a goal approved by outside scientific groups. It says, with great scale comes great responsibility, said John, John Zimmer, the co-founder and president of Lyft. We get up every day thinking about how we can continue to have a positive impact on the communities we serve. As we grow, so does the opportunity to increase the impact. Making all rides carbon neutral is one step closer to our mission of improving people's lives with the world's best transportation. And I'm going to actually start to round out this, art, this um, talk with the way this article finishes because there might be some questions on carbon credits uh, because it says this is how Lyft will become carbon neutral. It will do so by purchasing carbon credits from an organization called Three Degrees. They're a sustainability company based in San Francisco. So for every ton of carbon pollution that's released by its drivers, and they can calculate that by emissions of their cars and miles driven, etc., Lyft will pay three degrees to keep an equivalent amount of carbon pollution out of the atmosphere, either by removing it directly by planting trees or preventing its release. So um, keeping forests intact, for example, because when you cut down forest deforestation, those trees emit a lot of carbon as well. In the past, Three Degrees has established new wind farms, captured greenhouse gases from landfills, and planted new tracts of forest with the money from carbon credits. Lyft said it will calculate the exact amount of carbon pollution to offset the consulting of each driver's mileage and make the mo make and model of their car. It will not purchase credits to offset any pollution created by the manufacturer of the car. And then it goes on to say, carbon credits, extremely popular a decade ago, have fallen out of favor in the last few years. Energy scholars have questioned whether carbon credits actually fund carbon removing projects that would not otherwise happen. In any case, they tend to think it's better to not to just not to emit carbon in the first place than to offset it, quote unquote, offset it later. Three Degrees says its credits have been audited by an organization called Green E, Green E, an environmental nonprofit that certifies renewable energy proje projects, but that its Lyft specific credits have been credentialed by three different environmental nonprofits. And that I think is important. Um, in fact, I have some experience with that that I'll share real quick. For example, there's an organization that's called Wildlife Works. And while I was at working at Volcom, working with Caring, they were an investor in this organization, but it's a, um, it's a RED, R-E-D-T plus, is a, which is an acronym for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation. There's a UN envisioned climate change mitigation strategy that was designed to protect forests 
that would otherwise be destroyed and thereby avoid the release of CO2 emissions that harm the environment. But these are um, verified um, reduction programs. They're verified by the VCS. And the VCS, for example, stands for, um, these are standards for a sustainable future. It's developed by Vera. They manage standards that help countries, the private sector, and civil society achieve their sustainable and development climate change goals. The VCS program is the world's leading voluntary program for the certification of GHD, or greenhouse gas emission reduction projects. So there are organizations and um, standards in place to make sure that these programs are really doing what they're supposed to do. And for example, this organization, Wildlife Works, has this really cool um, program, the project, I should say, it's in Kenya. It's in the Kazagao region. Um, the problem was for years, it says that the land between um, two different areas, these national parks, it served as both home to a slowly failing cattle ranch and as the main migration corridor for local wildlife moving between the two national parks. And when they first encountered Rukinga, the community and the wildlife were at odds. Rukinga was a bruised, balding land barren of wildlife. Cattle had grazed the fields into dust, Poachers slipped on and off the ranch with ease, and trees were being clear-cut along the area's critical rainwater basin. In 1998, this is from their website, the Wildlife Works uh, website. It says, in 1998, we convinced the local community to let us establish, establish the Rukinga Wildlife Sanctuary. It covers 80,000 acres of forest. They established a community works project funding the locals with an alternative income stream in place of poaching and clear-cutting. They brought on locally hired rangers and trained them to be wilderness guardians. We got the owners of the cattle to remove the cattle from the land to reduce conflict over resources. So it says the protection area now has expanded to over 500,000 acres, which will offset 1 million tons of CO2 emissions per year for the next 30 years. So they're doing this just by protecting and preserving this area and incorporating the community um, and local, local people. With the dry land, Acacia comifora forest under our protection and its original biodiversity restored, the Kazagao Corridor Red Project was awarded the gold level status by the Community and Biodiversity Standard for Exceptional Biodiversity and Climate Benefits. There are six key elements to the Wildlife Works Kazagao Project that make it successful. Um, jobs supporting education, jobs making eco-friendly products, there are jobs protecting wildlife, rangers, and ecotourism. There are jobs managing their mission, jobs helping farmers, and jobs growing trees. So this is a type of program where you could offset your emissions with a project like this all throughout different parts of the world. That just happens to be one called the Wildlife Works um, Program. But uh, if we finish up the um, article real quick... So the article says, uh, goes on to say that more broadly, there are two ways of viewing Lyft's announcement. And this can probably be applied, these are my words here, to any, any article we read on big industry, big companies um, doing these types of things. But it says, first, it might be seen as an attempt to relieve one of the crowning ironies of the ride-hailing industry. For years, critics, critics have argued that ride-hailing apps like Uber and Lyft put more, more cars on the road, worsening both traffic congestion and local air quality. Academics at the University of California have claimed that ride-hailing apps are to blame for an ongoing decline in public transit use. Given that, given that subways and buses are almost always more environmentally friendly than cars, this represented a kind of secondary blow to the planet. Isn't that crazy? These are my words here that 
right when you think there's something good, there's always a, um, a, a there's you know cause and effect, or a um, an action and a consequence. But yet the same academics also found that the biggest users of ride-hailing apps were millennials and urbanites, two of the demographics most concerned about climate change, according to public polling. Young city-dwelling progressives were seemingly voting with their left hand and calling an Uber with their right. Going carbon neutral somewhat relieves at least one of those tensions. Now taking a lift won't be quite as degrading to the environment as it once was, even if it would still be more climate friendly for the lift using millennials to take public transportation. But there's a second way of understanding the announcement. As a new front in Lyft's ongoing war with its biggest competitor, Lyft has long marketed itself as a kinder, gentler alternative to Uber. Last year, the strategy paid off as Uber limped through a series of scandals. Uh, Lyft came to control a third of the U.S. ride-sharing market. But now Uber has softened its own image as well, hiring a new chief executive officer who has taken a more apologetic, less antagonistic approach. I've seen those commercials. I think they're cool. I'm interested to see how they go. In this light, going carbon neutral is a, sav- is a savvy move for Lyft, says the article. Its business depends in part on its holding the high moral ground. Of course, if Lyft is really successful at preventing carbon pollution, it will hardly matter why it decided to do so in the first place. Transportation, it says, is the leading cause of greenhouse gas pollution in the United States, responsible for just over a quarter of national annual emissions. Even as other parts of the economy have adopted cleaner fuels, carbon pollution from transportation, from transportation, cars, trains, planes, and ships, has increased since the end of the Great Recession. Cars in particular have proven a surprisingly stubborn problem. In 2017, Americans drove more miles than they did in previous years, and their cars did not become significantly more fuel efficient. Those two factors together led to a modest emissions increase from cars alone, according to the Rhodium Group, an energy analysis company. Worldwide, carbon pollution from all sources increased in 2017. We heard that, we saw it, and we saw how that... So that's interesting. There's a correlation right there, right? Worldwide, carbon pollution from all sources increased, and the temperatures continue to rise as well. That's a discouraging sign for people concerned about the climate. That's you and me, guys, as it ends a three-year period when emissions had stayed flat. The International Energy Agency reported that American and European consumers helped to drive the emissions increase by buying larger and more polluting SUVs. Did that have anything to do with gas prices? Um, those were my words. Some of those SUVs, no doubt, became lifts. No corporate initiative will prevent the worst ravages of global warming. The problem is simply too large, spanning too many sectors of the economy for any set of companies to make the necessary changes. Even today, under President Trump, the U.S. government still guides energy markets. It funds energy R&D projects and mandates energy efficiency programs. It just isn't guiding them at the moment toward fighting climate change. Earlier this month, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency announced that it would weaken the landmark gasoline efficiency rules that were adopted by the Obama administration. It's unclear how deep these cuts could be, but they might effectively flatline the fuel efficiency of American-made cars in the early half of the next decade. So then Robin, this is uh, Robinson Meyer here. He finishes. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, He covers climate change and technology, but he finishes this article saying, whether it's in five years or 15, the government will probably eventually be forced to guide these markets in the other direction. In the meantime, many of those new, less efficient cars will become lifts. Many more will become Ubers. And in the meantime, if the ride-hailing business begins correctly, 
to see climate to see the climate as its responsibility well it can only help corporations can't fix climate change but they can make the future a little bit of a smoother ride well done so there you have it guys that was a lot um and that all started just from my shift to really realizing how important um the carbon concept is and why emissions matter the effects of climate change are going to have on us as a species and as a civilization so i hope you got something from that that was a long one on the same topic but those are some really good articles hope that helps put things in perspective help hopefully it uh, breaks things down a bit for you as always if you have any questions want to talk about this more leave your comments shoot me an email get a hold of me over on the website theunderswell.com reach me on social media Derek A. Sabori or at the Underswell. I'm out there trying to do my part. And um, that's it for today. Look forward to the uh, next um, the next interview that we've got coming up. We've got a couple here in the in the tank then uh, and in the queue. So stay tuned. We're just trying to put out good sustainability stories to keep you informed, get you educated up to speed, and help you stay in the mix on this complicated thing called sustainability. All right. Talk soon. To hear more stories like this, or to learn more about our host, visit theunderswell.com.